0: This episode is brought to you in part by Harvest House Publishers and the new book, The Good Gift of Weakness. Discover how human weakness not only allows God's strength to shine, but it was all by His design. The Good Gift of Weakness is now available wherever books are sold.
1: I've always been pretty interested in, you know, it's probably why I went into science, uh, the search for truth and
2: meaning and purpose. This is Dominic D'Agostino. He's an associate professor at the University of South Florida, where he teaches at the Morsani School of Medicine and the Department of Molecular Pharmacology and Physiology. He's also a research scientist at the Institute for Human and Machine Cognition, where he leads research into efforts to optimize the health and performance of astronauts and warfighters, including work with Navy SEALs. But for many people, Dom is known for his groundbreaking research into the ketogenic diet, work that's led him onto a national platform. For instance, here he is on the Tim Ferriss Show in 2015.
1: Quick sound check. What did you have for breakfast this morning? Eggs and sardines and oysters. Eggs and sardines and oysters. Just throw that <laughs> and in a, broccoli. Just A little bit of broccoli. You just mm-hmm. throw it in a Vitamix? <laughs>
2: <laughs> and here he's on the Joe Rogan Show in 2017. Boom. And we're live.
1: How are you, Dom? Welcome to the show. Yeah, I'm doing great, Joe. Pull this Thanks sucker for right up close. Okay. There you go. If you're
2: I know you've done the podcast before. You did Tim Ferriss' podcast. I heard you
1: on that was, I did, yeah. I like, uh like three of them, I think I did.
2: I mention these because between the two of them, they account for millions of downloads. And as you might guess, Dom has appeared on countless others. But don't misunderstand, he's not out hawking fad diets. Instead, his research has explored the way the ketogenic diet, which has been around for about a hundred years, has shown amazing benefits for children with epilepsy, cancer patients, and how it's optimized performance for athletes and soldiers. For Dom, this ongoing research has led to a national platform, to NIH grants for research into metabolic therapies, and in 2017, to participation in NASA's NEMO Project, in which scientists experiment with life in extreme environments. In this case, he was part of a four-man team sent for 10 days to live and work deep under the ocean near the Florida Keys. Now, I'll confess that I first heard of Dom on The Ferris Show and was intrigued not only by the research, but also by his mention of Francis Collins' work, The Language of God, a book about the reconciliation of science and faith, and also his mention of both Mare Christianity and the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. He also identified himself as a believer on The Rogan Show and in his bios on social media. So I was eager to hear his story, to talk about his work. It turns out that his journey to faith wasn't a straight line, that his love of science was part of what propelled him towards an understanding of the mind behind the way the world worked.
0: There's a pine warbler sitting on a hollow limb. He seems to have the whole morning out right in front of him. And everything he sings from the branch that he's sitting on, it seems to hustle leaves and the colors all around. Now first he sings. Goes. And what it means, it's hard to know.
2: From Christianity Today, you're listening to Cultivated, conversations about faith and work. I'm Mike Cosper, and on today's show, I talk to Dom D'Agostino about reconciling science and faith, about his journey away from the church and back again, about his research, and the way his faith informs and inspires it. So stay with us.
1: I grew up in a, in a house that was, we went to a Methodist church, we went to Sunday school, and uh, you know we had the option to not attend church once we got into high school. And I think I just became uh, pretty much indifferent to, to uh, the church and to Christianity, and would probably describe myself as being agnostic. It was in 1991 my biology teacher gave us a summer assignment and i remember i had i was in football camp at the time so it was like a big thick book that i had to read over the summer and it was kind of i didn't expect that and i didn't appreciate that to be honest and the book was called bully for brontosaurus and it was written by uh the author was stephen j Gould, and he was a paleo paleontologist from harvard and it it really delved into evolution and biology and uh, it kind of keyed me into his writings. So I continued to read him, uh, his his works, and he was a pretty prolific writer. And then a few years later, he wrote another book that I read early in college called Rocks of Ages and described a non-overlapping magisteria, which is, uh, the term's a little nebulous, but, uh, this idea that science and religion are really two separate things.
2: In his book, Rocks of Ages, Gould lays out this distinction in detail. He writes, science tries to document the factual character of the natural world and to develop theories that coordinate and explain these facts. Religion, on the other hand, operates on the equally important but utterly different realm of human purposes, meanings, and values. Subjects that the factual domain of science might illuminate, but can never resolve. The whole discussion reminds me of a moment in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. There's a scene at the beginning of the movie where Indy's teaching a room full of college students, and he notes that archaeology is the study of fact, not truth. If you want truth, there's a philosophy class down the hall. And of course, there's nothing new about the desire to navigate the tension or apparent tension between science and faith. The historian Peter Harrison has argued that many of the pioneers of modern science, like Francis Bacon, Isaac Newton, or Robert Boyle, saw their scientific work as a recovery of knowledge lost in the fall of humanity, an argument that would say that science is kind of an inquiry inspired by faith. A similar argument for unity comes from the philosopher Susan Neiman, who argues that the book of Job is not only a work of theodicy, but also a work of scientific inquiry. And, of course, many others argue simply that religion and science have a common origin, a hunger to understand and explain the human experience that gives rise to everything from animism to neuroscience. What's interesting about Gould's idea is that it seems to embrace a more limited range of human understanding. There's something limited about human sensibility that makes bridging this gap impossible. In a way, this argument is actually liberating, encouraging both scientists and theologians to do their work and allowing for two kinds of experiences, the overt sense experiences that can be explained by the sciences and the deep inner spiritual experiences that come from religion without feeling the burden of having the one explain the other.
1: He was very passionate about the subject and I started reading other authors. And one was a Kenneth Miller, who wrote a book called Finding Darwin's God. And I was reading this through college and and also through college. I I had uh, several girlfriends who were pretty into their faith and they would ask me, you know, what do you believe? And I I didn't really have a science, you know, a a really firm standing uh, as a believer or a non-believer. And I fell into, I guess what would be called an an agnostic. And this created a bit of a conflict with the, the girlfriends at the time and as they were strong believers and uh, kind of got me seeking, you know, more and understanding it. So I could at least keep up with them on different conversations in, in regards to faith. And I kind of took the stance uh, more so as an atheist, trying to challenge some of their beliefs. And I, I did not believe at the time and I think this was about 1996, 97. Uh, I did not believe in a personal God. And as maybe Einstein did not believe in a personal God, but also is known to have made the very famous quote, science without
2: religion is lame and religion without science is blind. When Dom tells a story, you realize pretty quickly that he's the kind of person who, when he has questions, he's driven to find answers. It's kind of like the quote you heard at the beginning of the show. He's driven by the search for truth. And so in the years that followed, as he continued through college and graduate school, his spiritual search continued. He went to Rutgers University, where he double majored in nutritional science and biology, and he continued at Rutgers for his graduate work, completing a PhD in neuroscience and physiology. He also continued trying to find answers to his spiritual questions.
1: It's been said that you can judge a person by, like, you know, the car that they drive, but I feel like you can judge a person not only by the people they hang around, but by the books that you find on their shelves. (laughs) And I was a pretty voracious reader at the time. Uh, But I started reading a lot of the atheist literature, and I felt that to be a believer, it was really important to understand... The view of an atheist, and to be an atheist, it was is very important to understand the view uh, the views of a believer. So it's kind of reading the Bible, uh, reading books on faith, and also reading, you know, the books by Daniel Dennett and Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and and Sam Harris, and I would always read uh, Carl Sagan, and they threw up some pretty harsh arguments against religion (laughs) but they're not completely convincing and and i've read a lot of richard dawkins books and and you know i i personally don't believe in his god either so richard dawkins kind of has an internal representation of what god is and what spirituality is and i probably don't believe in his version of the god either so uh you know and i think it was in 2006 or 2008, when I was really not a believer or not, really not a non-believer, but more or less interested in this topic, Uh, I became, uh, I finished my PhD in physiology and in neuroscience. And I was uh, in Ohio at the time. and and just kind of moving, finishing up a fellowship and moving to Florida. And in 2006, uh, Francis Collins, who I knew very well because of the director of the Human Genome Project, he became the director of uh, the National Institutes of Health. So this is the organization that I write grants to, (laughs) to be a scientist. You know, it's it's basically the, the main federal organization that funds scientists for their endeavors. And I stumbled upon his book called The Language of God. And, you know, I had read uh, C.S. Lewis uh, during early college years, you know, the screw tape letters. I think I'd read that first, but it was above my head, to be honest. And uh, it didn't really resonate with me. But Francis Collins in his book, Language of God, which had a pretty big impact on me and really. Kind of lit a fire under my butt to uh, to start seeking because I wasn't earnestly seeking uh, an answer to this question of God. He presented in his book uh, what I would describe as you know theistic evolution or the, the evolutionary creation that evolution could be a means by which God you know, is working, and this idea, and that was pretty elegant, and it's coming from, you know, the upper echelons of, of, of science, and one of his, um, one of the books that was referred to him, I believe by a Methodist minister, that was uh, C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, so I think I had had it, but I have not really, I didn't really dig into it, so I had read this book, Mere Christianity, and, uh, and it, it resonated with me from many different levels. Uh, and at the same time, I was reading a number of other books uh, by Alistair McGrath and, and John, John R. Stott, who wrote the book Basic Christianity. And uh, I really liked that book too, but at the same time, I was reading uh, C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, And I'd read a couple pages of that. And then the next day, John Stott's Basic Christianity. And it was, the more I thought about it and meditated on it and later prayed on it, it really resonated with me. And Francis Collins kind of put up uh, a really nice framework that is now, he has a foundation called BioLogos. And BioLogos is a, a foundation that, it really sort of criticizes young earth creationists and also is heavily criticized by atheists. But I think seekers and skeptics really find the the works and the writings and the content on Biologos. They find it very comforting comforting. And generally it's it's a very big step forward. And I think in the harmony between uh science and and religion
2: you made the comment that you know at the time you weren't earnestly seeking at what point did that become part of the journey for you and what did what did seeking look like
1: i was approaching it from two different two different perspectives that maybe have conflict i was sort of investigating the historical jesus and the historical god like who wrote the bible and kind of questioning uh the scriptures and reading some authors that had, you know, been critical of, of the Bible in some ways, and and also I, I think when I when I started reading C.S. Lewis and I read Mere Christianity and went back to re- read the Screw Tape letters, then the Screw Tape letters really made sense, and it didn't really make sense until i understood the essence of christianity the first book of the bible that i really dug into and studied where i would read and then i would get other resources to fully understand the scripture was the book of james you know, I and I realized that I was very a very proud person and had a lot of pride. And it was the chapter in mere Christianity on pride that I probably read and reread more than any other chapter in that book. And I, in James four six, I think it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You know, and that's I remember uh, something writing, you know, that in my journal and circling it and reminding myself of that. And I think Prior to really becoming a Christian, I didn't even realize that I was proud and that, that I was not humble. There was not a defining moment where I became a Christian, but it was a series of steps in understanding from you know various authors, but really, but just by reading the New Testament and probably the most profound thing was just connecting through Christian fellowship with other believers. And, and other non-believers. I think I probably learned equal or more from non-believers <laughs> than I did from believers because I could see I could see the the harm that that can happen if you are not a believer. I always remember a line and In Mere Christianity, where it says, you know, look for yourself and you'll find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. That's a quote from C.S. Lewis that kind of still gives me chills today.
2: It sounds like you were fairly deep. I mean, you were fairly deep into your commitments as a as a scientist and a researcher at that point did arriving at a faith commitment transform the way you thought about what you were doing? Yeah, yeah, that's a
1: really good question. Yeah, absolutely. Growing up, church and faith was something that you just do on Saturdays, right? You just go to worship, you go uh, to Sunday school, you hear the sermon. But for me, it totally revolutionized my whole perspective of God and faith. So work became a form of worship. And ministry. You know, having Christ in me, I became sort of the walking (laughs) manifestation of Christ, right? And this idea, which is sort of pretty foreign to me before I accepted Christ into my life. But I I appreciated and recognized that my occupation and my relationship with students, and I teach hundreds of students, and and really what I do, the science, is what God called me to do. If I would go and meet with a student, if I'm in the lab doing an experiment, if I'm going to the gym, if I'm helping my neighbor do something, it's all a form of worship and ministry if God is on your mind. And it's just the little things. And I think that that's how we can sort of worship and do ministry and having conversations one on one with people. So just building those relationships on a more discreet kind of one-on-one level. And I've had, you know, many different students and people from many different areas of my life kind of connect with me and, and with questions. And it's, it's very uh, comforting and rewarding to have those conversations about God.
0: This episode is brought to you in part by Asbury Theological Seminary a multi-denominational evangelical seminary rooted in the Wesleyan tradition. Serving nearly 100 different denominations, Asbury Seminary prepares theologically educated, sanctified, spirit-filled men and women to evangelize and spread scriptural holiness throughout the world. Asbury Seminary is a spiritually vibrant, academically rigorous community with a residential campus in central Kentucky, extension sites in Orlando, Tampa, memphis tulsa and colorado springs and fully online programs with over 1800 students from 50 countries asbury seminary is committed to embracing a church that encompasses all people languages and ethnicities learn more at asbury.to get started this episode is brought to you in part by Asbury Theological Seminary, a multi-denominational evangelical seminary rooted in the Wesleyan tradition. Serving nearly 100 different denominations, Asbury Seminary prepares theologically educated, sanctified, spirit-filled men and women to evangelize and spread scriptural holiness throughout the world. Asbury Seminary is a spiritually vibrant, academically rigorous community with a residential campus in central Kentucky, extension sites in Orlando, Tampa, Memphis, Tulsa, and Colorado Springs, and fully online programs. With over 1,800 students from 50 countries, Asbury Seminary is committed to embracing a church that encompasses all people, languages, and ethnicities. Learn more at asbury.to slash get started. Well, let's talk a little bit about your specific
2: areas of kind of research and expertise and why don't you give us sort of the elevator pitch? Like what, what is it that in your, your work you've zeroed in on and, and, and focused on? Yeah.
1: Thanks for asking. Uh, so, you know, the, the more I advanced in my uh, career, I found that it was kind of important to focus on things that have the highest level of translatability and, <laughs> You know, and I, I think maybe uh, Francis Collins could could sort of you know relate to this as a scientist. And uh, I didn't even know until two thousand eight that he was a believer, and that he was really. It seemed like he put uh, almost a disproportionate amount of time, you know, discussing his faith. Uh, and that was that struck me as something that no other scientists, you know. Um, was doing and and maybe i'm stepping at stepping a little bit out of my secular world talking about my faith you know on this podcast but i really appreciate the opportunity uh, I, I view c.s lewis's book as a book on christian philosophy so the humble search for truth and purpose uh, really resonated with me in that book and it has guided my actions as a scientist you know as my faith became part of who I was. I, I focused away from science for science's sake and really focused on answering questions that are directly translated, translatable to people. Meaning that if we did an experiment and published a paper, someone in the outside world could read that paper and actually it would have uh, a measurable and observable impact on human health and for me that was really steering the research away from drug research uh from you know mechanistic uh experiments that are that really are elegant and from the perspective of a scientist it, it, they were great because i can get them into you know high impact peer-reviewed journals and it looks like fantastic science but i would ask the question what, you know, what was the impact of this paper? So I became very interested in fasting because fasting was a means to control seizures. And we have known this for millennia. So I became interested in how fasting changes our physiology and changes our brain neuropharmacology. So literally. The food that we eat, and I'll get to that in talking about the ketogenic diet, and what we don't eat and going without food actually changes the energy systems in the body in a way that changes the way the brain functions. And specifically, it has an anti-seizure effect. And I was funded by the Department of Defense, and within the Department of Defense is the Office of Navy Research. I was contracted and funded to really understand something called oxygen toxicity seizures, which is a limitation for Navy SEAL divers using a closed circuit rebreather. And we did not know fundamentally why these seizures occur, and we did not know fundamentally how to prevent these seizures. So I was mostly interested in drug research when I started investigating this, but then discovered that the ketogenic diet is used for epilepsy and and other seizure disorders when drugs fail so this really interested me because i majored in nutrition science but did not even have did not even know that the ketogenic diet is 100 years old and it was you know developed at the mayo clinic and it was used in, in johns hopkins and major major places around the world as in the, a frontline therapy, even the standard of care for seizure disorders, independent of the etiology, That means you could have seizures from a variety of different causes and the ketogenic diet would work. So I wanted to apply it to what I was studying, oxygen toxicity seizures, and it became it was remarkably effective for that. In animal models, and now we're doing human clinical trials, but I also recognize that the ketogenic diet and things like intermittent fasting, and and you know just changing the way you eat, there was science. Like there was a lot of science to unpack there, and a lot of science to understand that could greatly improve human health. You know, type two diabetes, uh, cancer, a wide array of neurological diseases and neurodegenerative diseases, and doing. The research to validate the efficacy of these we call them metabolic therapies because when you write a grant to a federal organization and call it a diet it doesn't really get much attention but if you <laughs> repackage it and term it a metabolic therapy then it you know becomes sort of uh, a little bit more legitimate in the eyes of science uh, but that these metabolic therapies can empower people and more or less awaken the doctor within them So our bodies have an incredible capacity to heal and we can unleash that capacity by just correcting our nutrition and then formulating specific types of diets that can augment our physiology in a way that can allow us to heal and actually change the neurotransmitter systems in the brain, for example. So one of the things that we studied was that the ketogenic diet in various animal model systems can decrease glutamate, which is linked to anxiety and epilepsy and a wide range of seizure disorders, in particular oxygen toxicity seizures. It can reduce the amount of glutamate and elevate the amount of GABA. So GABA is a neurotransmitter. It's short for gamma amino acid. Uh, There's an enzyme that can convert glutamate, which is excitotoxic in high levels uh, to GABA, which has a brain stabilizing calming effect on your personality. So this is just one of the mechanisms that a metabolic therapy, like a ketogenic diet or ketone supplementation can do to to change uh, the, literally the neuropharmacology of the brain. So, and we study probably, I have, lectures next week where i go into 10 to 12 different mechanisms and how ketogenic diets can be therapeutic and this is actually to the national institutes of health and to american epilepsy society where i have these talks so it has been a a fascinating and really exciting field of science to be in uh, using i guess you'd call it nutritional neuroscience and what's great about this kind of science is that when you publish it, it can have broad ranging and high implications and translatability to a wide range of people. And and because of that, because of the popularity of the keto diet and uh, the public interest in nutrition, ketogenic diets in particular, I guess you could say, you know, I've been on many podcasts to talk about you know, uh, the science and the emerging applications of the ketogenic diet, not just for pediatric epilepsy, but for things like depression, for anxiety. Uh, we study, we have models of anxiety, and ketone supplementation is remarkably effective. We have models of cancer, uh, models of rare genetic diseases, where the ketogenic diet is more effective than any drugs that we currently know. So this is, you know, uh, really focusing on these these translatable therapies has been a passion of mine because I believe our we, we have the capacity to heal ourselves if we give it the proper fuels and understanding the science behind that and how to formulate the right kinds of diets is sort of, I feel God's work. You know, some people may say that's a stretch, but I really feel that. You know, God has given me the passion and the understanding and the knowledge to really understand this field, and I can put my own time and effort and the people working under me on these projects, and they are very passionate about, about this too.
2: Dom's passion for this work shows up in his writing, his speaking, and in other public appearances, like podcasts. His research is showing that by changing one's diet, you can treat a myriad of symptoms, especially neurological issues. Scientists, doctors, and researchers across the country are exploring these same applications, from Harvard to Johns Hopkins to the Mayo Clinic, and Dom's research is often at the forefront of that work. One person I spoke to referred to him as ketogenic Jesus, not because he's a Christian, they actually weren't aware of that fact, but because of the evangelistic fervor he inspires with his work. For Dom, that just seems to be part of the ongoing investigative spirit, a hunger to ask questions and to seek answers. In some ways, his whole life is an experiment. If you go follow him online, on social media, you'll see that he's constantly self-experimenting, posting graphs of his breath ketones, his blood sugar responses to various meals. There's a curiosity that permeates everything he's doing. And while in the beginning, those instincts seemed to clash with his understanding of the spiritual life, he now sees them as sort of a mirror for each other. When I asked him to explain that, he quoted C.S. Lewis again.
1: You know one of the quotes i have written
2: down in my journal is
1: human history is a long and terrible story of man trying to find something other than god to make him happy and i think science is always is a work in progress christianity for me is also a work in progress if i read the bible now it means something it's a living word right it means something different to me than it did 10 years ago so it's always I feel like I'm always moving the needle on my understanding of Christianity. Science does not have all the answers, so science is a work in progress, and I think your faith and your your understanding of Christianity, me especially, is it's a work in progress, and I'm learning all the time, I'm refining it. Science is actually shedding light and actually giving me more understanding of faith, and and as I mentioned, my faith in Christ uh, gives me purpose, and that motivates me to do the work in science.
0: first he sings, and then he goes, and what it means, it's hard to know.
2: Thanks for listening. If you like our show, please leave us a rating and a review wherever you're getting your podcast. Cultivated is a production of Christianity Today. This episode was produced by me. It was edited by Mark Owens. Our theme song is by Roman Candle, and our music is by Dan Phelps. We'll see you next week.